It's beautiful to see you all settling into silence and feeling uh, that uh, there's a lot of experience clearly uh, here in this room and people uh, touching that nourishing source of uh, sitting in silence. So I thought it would be helpful for me to talk a little bit about my own uh, my own background, my own experience, and how I came to pastoral counseling after being uh, ordained as a Zen priest and being a Zen practitioner for for many years. Uh, let me begin with just uh, what happened yesterday. Yesterday. Uh, uh, I had a meeting with uh, a first uh, first meeting with a woman who called me up and wanted to do a counseling session, uh, and she said that she was uh, someone who was connected with uh, Insight Meditation community, but she didn't want to talk about her life and her experience to someone in the Insight meditation community, although of course she does that, but uh, but she did want to talk with someone who has some uh, understanding of her Buddhist practice, so she didn't want to go to uh, a psychotherapist who didn't, who wouldn't necessarily have that kind of uh, understanding of her own life uh, practice and commitment and experience. And so, um, so we met, and I felt, uh, well, this is this is wonderful. This is I'm ready to do this. Uh, several years ago, I wouldn't uh, have quite known how to respond, uh, and I would have probably asked her to go see someone, someone else. But I wouldn't have known really who would be appropriate. Um, so I felt that the uh, study and uh, Practice and the pastoral counseling program that I've been doing for the past few years actually helped me, and I was putting it into use. And uh, in the course of our meeting yesterday, she had she said a few things. One that she had uh, done a, a long retreat in Southeast Asia and had a uh, deep awakening experience, and. When she came back to the United States, she was realizing that she needed to change her whole life based upon the experience that she had in her uh, intense and concentrated uh, meditation practice in Southeast Asia. So that presented all kinds of issues uh, for how she should live her life, and she needed to uh, work through work through those with uh, someone else who would understand. And then in the course of our conversation, I began to notice some other things that I uh, probably wouldn't have asked her about um, uh, a few years ago. Or from from my experience as being a Zen Dharma teacher, I wouldn't have asked her necessarily about her family background. I wouldn't have asked her about her uh, relationship history. 
and, but in this case I did because uh, I have a different uh, role actually as a pastoral counselor and uh, quickly discovered that there are some some things that really uh, were were say problems for for her and her life in those areas um, it's a history of, uh, of abuse in her uh, family of origin and uh, Reflecting on my own uh, experience and how I was taught in, uh, in Zen practice and going into Doksan with various teachers, um, there was very little or sometimes no inquiry into those other parts of my life, my family history or my relationships or anything else that was going on uh, with my, my work. And it's... Uh, it's clear to me that there is, uh, I think, a need and a place uh, to address things uh, that are going on, uh, particularly for people who are not in a residential practice community, but who are uh, in the working world and are coming for, say, brief periods of time, maybe maybe very concentrated, as the session, um, or occasional uh, doksan or meeting with a teacher. We say doksan. I'm not sure what uh, people here in other uh, the Vipassana community or uh, Tibetan uh, Vajrayana, you would all have your own terms. But for the one-on-one encounter with uh, with a Dharma teacher, uh, so that's uh, the point at which I'm I am very interested right now in exploring coming out of this pastoral counseling training. And uh, also continuing as a uh, Zen Dharma teacher. Now, I met with this person particularly because she was coming from the Vipassana community. If someone from San Francisco Zen Center now calls me up and asks me to do pastoral counseling, I feel that I would say I would refer you to someone else. Um, And I would see you in Doksan in a more formal setting and uh, within some understandings of the context of our specific uh, Zen training. Um, and later we'll talk a little bit more, and I think Jaku will talk quite a bit about that. But let me go back to um, my own, a little bit more of my own history. I was uh, raised in a Mennonite Christian community in Kansas. Uh, it happened to be the most liberal uh, branch of the Mennonite, many, many Mennonite branches. And I know most people, Mennonites kind of obscure enough, but uh, among Mennonites there's a big difference, you know, whether you're uh, an older order Mennonite, a conservative Mennonite, a general conference Mennonite. Uh, and, uh, and of course we have a relationship uh, with, uh, with Amish and Hutterite uh, and the whole Anabaptist uh, reform movement that, that uh, arose in Europe in the, in the 16th uh, century. So there's that background. And my great-great-grandfather was uh, Elder Jacob and actually brought a group. So he was a pastor of a group uh, in, uh, that came to them from Russia to... Uh, Kansas in the 1870s. 
So the Mennonites took advantage of the fact that the uh, the uh, Santa Fe Railroad had just crossed the country, and um, there have been people out there killing buffalo and driving back the Native Americans. And actually, I feel some a little perplexity about the fact that the peaceful Mennonites, Mennonites are known as a pacifist group, right? That they came in on the just uh, after the battle, basically, and took advantage of this opportunity and started plowing up the, the prairies. So there was a very theistic uh, orientation, as well as a uh, kind of a German patriarchal orientation in my family. Um, which I started to question at an early age. And when I was, say, 12 years old, I'd say I was a theist. And when I was 13, I was a deist. And when I was 14, I was an atheist. <laughs> and that didn't fit well, and so I was uh, asked to leave Sunday school class permanently. <laughs> I was asking too many questions that didn't fit the uh, the community that I was raised in. So, so I had this uh, this uh, idea that it was actually okay to ask questions, and that was my nature. Uh, and so I'm still I'm still asking questions. But after being a, an atheist for a few years, I kind of backed off of that a little bit and became an agnostic, realizing uh, I really didn't know. Um, so that was, that was in high school. Um, and then I did enough various, various things uh, and uh, found myself in Chicago in a commune living with other people on the north side of Chicago in the, the late 1960s and uh, learning how to live with people with the notion that we were creating an alternative to the materialist, consumerist, Society that we were surrounded in, which was also uh, carrying on a war in Vietnam. Um, so the inherent violence in in the the culture was something that we wanted to counter, and we wanted to live in a different way, but we weren't really so sure how to do that. We literally spent uh, the first year we we had two rules in our commune. One was that you had to come to a meeting every week. And the other rule was that each person uh, should have their own room. How we arrived at that was our great wisdom. <laughs> the meeting every week, we, we spent literally most of the first year uh, arguing about how to get the dishes washed. It was a big issue. We all wanted to eat, and we all made messes, but who cleaned up the mess? Uh, and, and we had all kinds of uh, systems that we tried of organizing, how to clean up the mess, charts and rotations and, and you know, changing the responsibility from this person to that. Some people were better at it than others, but some people would be really mean about it, you know, telling, you know, riding hard on someone whose turn it was. And, um, but what interested me actually was after a year of doing that, but we, we really did keep to our plan of meeting every week. And after a year of doing that, we had no more need to talk about washing the dishes. 
and we had no more need of any administration around it. So we had arrived at an, an anarchistic solution by you know, hammering away at each other for a year in which everyone just knew what to do. And things got, took, uh, got taken care of. The dishes got washed. And uh, so that was one thing that was a little bit, I would say, a little, a little uh, a bit of hard-won success. Uh, we also had what we called the Free University of Chicago. And uh, I was responsible for a men's uh, consciousness raising group. We were uh, responding to the feminist movement, realizing that as men we needed to do something and we were really clueless. Um, so it was a drop-in group that I led. And what I began to notice was that we were at war with ourselves. I began to notice that uh, in, our, in our commune, and there were various other collectives around, and we were engaged with them and their problems, and what I noticed was that we were all really at war with, with, uh, with ourselves. And so this, the question of how can you be at war with yourself came up, and I really began to investigate in my own being the uh, say, the separation between my intentions and my actual behavior. Uh, my intentions and my ability to actually uh, live in a different way than what I had habitually been uh, either trained to do or be, uh, say, in reaction against. And about that time, someone gave me a, a copy of uh, The Three Pillars of Zen, and I started sitting Zazen. I just took this question and actually had to stop and consider this matter of how I could be at war with myself. And uh, in a sense, I'm still doing that, still investigating that question. Now, when I came to San Francisco Zen Center, I went through various uh, uh, kinds of uh, training and living in the community. Um, eventually was ordained as a priest. Eventually uh, started leading my own group. And in leading my own group, I had an idea of what Dharma practice was or is and the kinds of relationship, the kind of questions that we would address in uh, our encounters and in discussion of the Dharma. And I was kind of disappointed and put off sometimes by all kinds of other things that would interfere with my idea of what should be our focus in Dharma study. Kind of things like people coming in and saying that they're upset about what their boss told them at work, you know, this week. Or the fact that they're going to have to, they're going to, or they were fired, or they could be fired, or that they were going to have to change their career. Or that their daughter was uh, a teenager and was driving a family crazy. Uh, maybe uh, was involved with drugs, maybe had done some uh, uh, self-mutilation uh, or uh, damage to themselves. Um, all kinds of uh, questions about uh, relationships with, uh, with one's spouse. Questions about what should I do? Uh, I, I wanted to confess to someone that I molested a child uh, some time ago. But uh, so this kind of, these, these kinds of uh, issues were coming up 
in the Doksan room, and I began to realize I really didn't have the training to respond in the best way. My, uh, my sincere uh, attempt to simply be present and regard them as Buddha was helpful. It was helpful to be present, but not specifically so helpful to the kinds of concerns and uh, issues that were coming up. And I had to let go of some of my ideas about uh, what really was the, the frame, the container, and the focus of uh, what we would do in, uh, in Doksan. Uh, I, I went to uh, Dominican University. I was living in San Rafael. I went to, it's called, then it was called Dominican College. Now it's called Dominican University. Enrolled in a program in clinical psychology. And I uh, began to, to uh, hear from the teachers there a behavioral science approach to the kinds of questions that people were coming up with. But what I, what I really missed there was any kind of a context of anything that was really deeper than what, uh, say, the analytic mind would understand. And deeper by uh, by that I mean some recognition of the experience that we all say touch when we're in silence. The experience that we touch when we are realizing our complete interconnection with others. Uh, and maybe the word spiritual that's come up earlier uh, uh, at least uh, calls that into some awareness. So I felt that there was really no recognition and no respect of a whole, say, body of resource and capacity that people have within themselves that was not acknowledged in the courses that I was taking. And when I would bring it up, it was kind of like, we don't really know what to do with that, you know. Uh, so I dropped out of that program and was was was, was disappointed and and uh, wondering. Uh, did some reading. And uh, at a certain point, a friend of mine point, uh, mentioned to me that there's this whole uh, training in pastoral counseling at the Lloyd Center, which was only a couple of miles from where I was living. I had never heard of pastoral counseling. And this was uh, just a few years ago. So this was, say, in 2003. I had never heard of pastoral counseling. Maybe I'd heard of it, but it didn't register as anything of, of any uh, possible meaning to me. So I went over to the Lloyd Center in pastoral counseling and met with uh, the director there and discovered that, uh, oh, there's a whole training available that's based upon people's uh, commitment to a spiritual path. People uh, need to either be clergy or have some uh, kind of ordination. Uh, some recognition as a leader within some, some religious denomination to enter this program. And they were delighted to have someone uh, who was coming from a completely different perspective uh, of Buddhism. And uh, so I went, so I enrolled and I went through the, the process and have, uh, I think the dean was a little concerned actually. They'd never had a Buddhist before and particularly they hadn't had someone who had rejected their Christianity. <laughs> so they were concerned that they knew of, huh? Oh, okay. <laughs> that, had, that had come out. 
<laughs> out of the closet rejecting their Christianity. So, and uh, and it's true that uh, I was, uh, as a teenager and young person, I was very angry actually about um, some of the things that had been imposed upon me in the name of Christianity. And um, and I was very angry with my father, right? And uh, so it took me a long time because he was the main, uh, the locus and focus of, uh, of how this uh, Christianity was imposed upon me. Um, so there would have been a time where they would have really probably been uh, quite justified in their concern that maybe I was coming into this program with a chip in my shoulder and I was really going to be uh, a problem. Uh, but after meeting with the dean and... and uh, I think she could tell by my uh, deportment and the way I answered her questions that uh, I wasn't coming with a chip on my shoulder, that I was actually open to uh, engaging with other people and uh, contributing what I could. So then they were quite interested in a bridge and how to translate some of the pastoral counseling and psychotherapeutic work that had been brought together uh, and bridging that with my own uh, Buddhist meditation practice. So uh, now I'm at the point of uh, just uh, beginning to use the training that I've done for the past several years. And uh, I should just say that uh, I can talk about that in more detail for those who are interested, and we might do have that be uh, one of the groups this afternoon if there's, if there's an interest. I want to mention, I printed out some copies of the curriculum and uh, for the Doctor of Ministry program and pastoral counseling at the Lloyd Center, which are on the table over in there. And also, I brought some books that have, some of them have been uh, part of the curriculum and some of them have just been uh, helpful to me. Uh, oh, by the way, Gil had told me that there's a there's in the culture here there's the culture of uh, bringing books to just to g- give away. And these books on the table here are not to give away. They're just <laughs> there are books for you to look at so you see what they are and then you can decide uh, if it might be useful to you. Um, now I wanted to mention. Uh, my own specific bias now in doing the pastoral counseling training uh, one of the part of the process of the pastoral counseling is introducing you to various uh, psychotherapeutic uh, uh, modalities various approaches to uh, to working with people and there's a history of course with different uh, branching streams of uh, psychotherapy which continues to evolve uh, what I found that really uh, uh, resonated deeply with me and that I've been using is uh, an approach called internal family systems. And I realize when I tell people that, they don't really pick up all the three parts of it, internal family system. Um, internal family systems refers to a system, it's a, a systems approach to your inner world. It comes from... Uh, the work of uh, Richard uh, Schwartz uh, in Chicago. About 25 years ago, he 
he had been trained as a family therapist, and he uh, was working with families and realizing that uh, he had done all the therapeutic work with a particular family, and still there was problem with with the and and in listening to some particular clients, he began to discover that oh, within them there's actually an internal system that is. Uh, uh, in many ways uh, similar to working with the dynamics, the interactive dynamics of uh, individual members of a family and looking within individuals and seeing, oh, there's actually different parts of an individual that have their own internal dynamics. One of the things I've noticed uh, in myself and with some other Zen practitioners is, is that we have a way of, in our meditation, of settling within a particular area of familiarity within ourselves. And we've, we develop a kind of comfort zone within ourselves. Some people have the experience of being uh, really uh, nourished and deeply calm when they're in the zendo, but then when they go out and work in the garden or go to work in the office or go to work in the kitchen, they feel blindsided, actually. By, by another uh, aspect of themselves. And I've, I began to think of this in Buddhist terms as uh, well, part of what we mean by samskaras, um, which is maybe a familiar term to most people here, but we talk about uh, uh, the five skandhas or the five uh, aggregates, uh, form, feeling, perception, and uh, then mental formations and consciousness. So the mental formations, uh, samskaras, may be understood uh, in various ways, and I, I see it as a very broad category. And uh, and I'm not happy. I, I don't feel that I need to define it, but just to say how it works for me is to to understand. One of my teachers years ago said, "Think of samskaras as uh, volitional bundles." So volitional bundles, then, to me, comes to mean uh, uh, say we could ex- we experience in our body and in our mind in certain patterns that we have in our thinking, uh, maybe reactive patterns, uh, habits of perception that we bring to things, uh, ways in which we either uh, react to or or uh, feel repelled by certain experiences that we have. And in internal family systems, those are understood and explored as, uh, say, uh, parts of an internal system or an internal world. Um, and there, there uh, is a rather highly developed, uh, say, approach and technique to working uh, with, this, uh, with this inner system. So I've also been taking, in conjunction with the pastoral counseling training, I've been taking training in uh, internal family systems uh, with uh, Dick Schwartz and some of his other teachers who have come out to... Uh, lead a training uh, in Petaluma at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. So I'm um, continuing with that as well. Now I'm finding that uh, that particular orientation is helpful to me, and I think uh, that's, and I, I, know, I know of several other Zen teachers actually, who also uh, have some familiarity and are working a little bit with the internal family systems approach. 
And I've talked to other people who are well-established uh, psychotherapists and counselors who say, oh, I already do that, or I already do some, some version of that. Um, so I think, it, you know, each person finds uh, your own way of working that works for you. Uh, so I just want to acknowledge uh, that this particular approach is working for me, and I'm not all, and part of it is also having my own uh, internal family systems therapist. So I have a, I have a therapist that I'm working with. So this actually helps me work with the things that come up in my interactions with, uh, say, students. Uh, I see it, and, and as I'm becoming uh, abbot of San Francisco Zen Center, and there are other people here from San Francisco Zen Center, um, when I, when I uh, feel uh, what we call, psychotherapeutically, we'd say our countertransference, we notice in ourselves something coming up as counter-transference. And actually, that's an interesting term. I just want to mention, I, I thought I knew about counter-transference, right? But doing this training, um, the biggest benefit, I'd say, in addition to all the curriculum, is supervised uh, uh, counseling. So part of the training is actually recording your, your sessions, taking it back to the supervisor, playing the tape, and your supervisor says, what happened right there? Why did you say that? And you could have said that, something else. Or what were you feeling when you said that? Um, in that way, you begin to notice, uh, become more tuned in you know, to the relationship that you have and your own, uh, say, uh, samskaras that are activated or damped down or having some kind of response to what's happening. And it becomes a, a wonderful refinement, a very subtle practice. Um, and I think it's very helpful for each of us to have peers, colleagues who are equal, uh, who can call us on the, the reactions and responses that we have. So I'm shift, I've shifted uh, from feeling that the teacher-student relationship was all you needed to have the feeling that that's really valid and important, but also that it's, it's, uh, it's uh, say, equally important, particularly as you mature in the practice, to have peer relationships, uh, colleagues, and uh, people that you actually uh, invite to give you feedback. Um, so let's see, is there anything else I wanted to mention right now? Let me look at my notes. There are some issues. Um, I haven't talked about money. Uh, when you move into the realm of, uh, of psychotherapy, there's fee for service. In the realm of Dharma teaching and Dharma practice, we have dana. I think, uh, and I think being clear about the financial aspects of relationship is very important. I have uh, maybe not been so clear in the past. I'm becoming more aware that I need to really be clear about uh, the impact of the financial relationship, that piece of it. Um, so we can talk more about that. I want to talk a little bit about one of my, one of my uh, samskaras um, or tendencies. Another word, actually, when I've been re reviewing Suzuki Roshi's talks, and he uses the word tendencies. 
many times and says, you should know your tendencies. So I thought, I'm thinking Suzuki Roshi was actually using the word tendencies to mark uh, samskaras. That uh, tendencies, then when you know your tendencies and you understand how your tendencies uh, are at work or at play in yourself, then you have some uh, freedom. But if you don't know your tendencies, then your tendencies can run you. Your tendencies can run your life. And, uh, and in, a, in a way that you then are enslaved by your tendencies. Uh, so I have a tendency to be a helper. I have a tendency to, uh, uh, say, want to be a good guy. And I've been watching, particularly in this particular training, how my the desire to be a good guy actually covers, uh, say, some anxiety in myself, some awkwardness, or and I've found that I've been trained. Actually, most people like me to be a good guy. Right? People would rather have me be the good guy than to be the angry, rebellious, you know, difficult person. Um, but I have that too. Right? But the the. But when I'm uh, faced with the edge of my practice where I really don't know what to do, we talk about not knowing and the importance of not knowing in our practice. And so when, you're, when, when I'm right at the edge of not knowing, particularly in a situation of uh, encounter relationship with another person, the tendency is for me to be the good guy. And the good guy may not be the best, actually, because the good guy misses some of the information that's right in front of me. So I just want to mention that so that you know that much about me. And, uh, <laughs> and know that I'm working with that. So if I'm, if I'm not a good guy, then you could say, hey, where's the good guy? <laughs> um, but also, uh, you may, I uh, think, in a room full of people who are dedicated to helpers and service and so forth, we have a lot of uh, there may be some resonance, or maybe many of you who feel like, okay, that that's really what you want to be. However, it's important to know that that's not the totality of who you are. It may be a way that you have uh, of uh, kind of protecting yourself from something that's more awkward or painful or uh, or uncertain. And there's a richness that can come if you're willing to stay, to cultivate your stability of mind and presence, mindfulness, with that uh, area that's maybe uh, uncomfortable. And that actually may help you in, say, being more gracious um, and more complete in uh, relations with other people. Um, so one issue also, I think, is uh, that I just want to mention in brief, is the notion of, uh, say, purity, dharmic purity. Where we are here uh, in the West practicing uh, a way that has evolved over many centuries. And we don't know. There's actually no way in which uh, we can do Zen in the way it was done in Japan or the way Chan was done in China. We have to do it in our own way. Uh, 
I felt for a while that the only way to do it was to do uh, practice in a monastic setting. But then when I moved out and was working with a small group of people in, a, in, uh, in the workaday world, I discovered I couldn't do that. And so I felt, you know, are we losing the Dharma? Am I losing the Dharma? A couple of years ago, I visited uh, Japan. And one night I stayed at a temple in Hiroshima with uh, Shoken Yokoyama, who was the priest of that temple. And uh, we got up in the morning and did zazen and did a morning service. We had breakfast together. And then his uh, wife had made him his lunch. And he was going out to meet his danka. He was going out to meet his... Uh, members of his community, his sangha, his congregation, we would say. And I asked him what he was going to do, and he said, well, he's going to do, in each, when he goes to each house this time of year, he's going to do a short ceremony, which is a blessing for that family. And then he's going to be uh, doing a little counseling, because they will have some problem, and they have some question. And so he, does, uh, he tries to answer their, their life problems. And, of course, sometimes people come to the temple for that, but he also goes out and spends the day going from place to place. Um, so that gave me a different picture of uh, the role of Zen priest than I had experienced at San Francisco Zen Center. And it's actually been helpful to me to refer to that as I continue to evolve uh, my own practice and think about how to train uh, other priests and teachers um, as we develop our own uh, approach to how to live the Dharma uh, here in America. So I want to close with those thoughts. I know some people are getting a little restless. It's time maybe to take a break. And uh, if there's any any questions that you have for me or whatever, we'll do that a little, little later. Uh, make a note of them. Can we come back again in 15 minutes? Yes.